evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight we continue our story, The Valley of Fear, by Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter 3 The Tragedy of Burlstone. Now, for a moment, I will ask leave to remove my own insignificant personality and to describe events which occurred before we arrived upon the scene by the light of knowledge which came to us afterwards. Only in this way can I make the reader appreciate the people concerned and the strange setting in which their fate was cast. The village of Burlstone is a small and very ancient cluster of half-timbered cottages on the northern border of the county of Sussex. For centuries it had remained unchanged, but within the last few years its picturesque appearance and situation have attracted a number of well-to-do residents whose villas peep out from the woods around. These woods are locally supposed to be the extreme fringe of the Great Weald Forest, which thins away until it reaches the northern chalk downs. A number of small shops have come into being to meet the wants of the increased population, so there seems some prospect that Burlstone may soon grow from an ancient village into a modern town. It is the center for a considerable area of country, since Turnbridge Wells, the nearest place of importance, is 10 or 12 miles to the eastward over the borders of Kent. About half a mile from the town, standing in an old park famous for its huge beech trees, is the ancient manor house of Burlstone. Part of this venerable building dates back to the time of the First Crusade, when Hugo de Capus built a fortalice in the center of the estate, which had been granted to him by the Red King. This was destroyed by fire in 1543, and some of its smoke-blackened cornerstones were used when, in Jacobian times, a brick country house rose upon the ruins of the feudal castle. The manor house, with its many gables and its small diamond-paned windows, was still much as the builder had left it in the early 17th century. Of the double moats which had guarded its more warlike predecessor, the outer had been allowed to dry up and serve the humble function of a kitchen garden. The inner one was still there and lay forty feet in breadth, though now only a few feet in depth, round the whole house. A small stream fed it and continued beyond it, so that the sheet of water, though turbid, was never ditch-like or unhealthy. The ground-floor windows were within a foot of the surface of the water. The only approach to the house was over a drawbridge, the chains and windlass of which had long been rusted and broken. The latest tenants of the manor house had, however, with characteristic energy, set this right, and the drawbridge was not only capable of being raised, but actually was raised every evening and lowered every morning. By thus renewing the custom of the old feudal days, the manor house was converted into an island during the night, a fact which had a very direct bearing upon the mystery which was soon to engage the attention of all England. The house had been untenanted for some years and was threatening to molder into a picturesque decay when the Douglases took possession of it. This family consisted of only two individuals, John Douglas and his wife. 
Douglas was a remarkable man, both in character and in person. In age, he may have been about fifty, with a strong-jawed, rugged face, a grizzling mustache, peculiarly keen gray eyes, and a wiry, vigorous figure which had lost nothing of the strength and activity of youth. He was cheery and genial to all, but somewhat offhand in his manners, giving the impression that he had seen life in social strata on some far lower horizon than the county society of Sussex. Yet, though looked at with some curiosity and reserve by his more cultivated neighbors, he soon acquired a great popularity among the villagers, subscribing handsomely to all local objects and attending their smoking concerts and other functions, where, having a remarkably rich tenor voice, he was always ready to oblige with an excellent song. He appeared to have plenty of money, which was said to have been gained in the California goldfields, and it was clear from his own talk and that of his wife that he had spent a part of his life in America. The good impression which had been produced by his generosity and by his democratic manners was increased by a reputation gained for utter indifference to danger. Though a wretched rider, he turned out at every meet and took the most amazing falls in his determination to hold his own with the best. When the vicarage caught fire, he distinguished himself also by the fearlessness with which he re-entered the building to save property, after the local fire brigade had given it up as impossible. Thus it came about that John Douglas of the manor house had within five years won himself quite a reputation in Burlstone. His wife, too, was popular with those who had made her acquaintance, though after the English fashion. The callers upon a stranger who settled into the county without introductions were few and far between. This mattered the less to her as she was retiring by disposition, and very much absorbed to all appearance in her husband and her domestic duties. It was known that she was an English lady who had met Mr. Douglas in London, he being at that time a widower. She was a beautiful woman tall, dark, and slender, some twenty years younger than her husband, a disparity which seemed in no wise to mar the contentment of the daily life. It was remarked sometimes, however, by those who knew them best, that the confidence between the two did not appear to be complete, since the wife was either very reticent about her husband's past life, or she, as seemed more likely, was imperfectly informed about it. It had been noted and commented upon by a few observant people that there were signs sometimes of some nerve strain upon the part of Mrs. Douglas, and that she would display acute uneasiness if her absent husband should ever be particularly late in his return. On a quiet countryside where all gossip is welcome, this weakness of the lady of the manor house did not pass without remark, and it bulked larger upon people's memory when the events arose which gave it a very special significance. There was yet another individual whose residence under that roof was, it is true, only an intermittent one, but whose presence at the time of the strange happenings, which will now be narrated, brought his name prominently before the public. This was Cecil James Barker, of Hales Lodge, Hampstead. Cecil Barker's tall, loose-jointed figure was a familiar one in the main street of Burlstone Village, for he was a frequent and welcome visitor at the manor house. He was the more noticed as being the only friend of the past unknown life of Mr. Douglas, who was ever seen in his new English surroundings. 
Parker was himself an undoubted Englishman, but by his remarks it was clear that he had first known Douglas in America and had there lived on an intimate term with him. He appeared to be a man of considerable wealth and was reputed to be a bachelor. In age, he was rather younger than Douglas, 45 at the most, a tall, straight, broad-chested fellow with a clean-shaved prize-fighter face, thick, wrong black eyebrows, and a pair of masterful black eyes which might, even with the aid of his very capable hands, clear a way for him through a hostile crowd. He neither rode nor shot, but spent his days in wandering round the old village with his pipe in his mouth, or in driving with his host, or in his absence with his hostess, over the beautiful countryside. An easy-going, free-handed gentleman, said Ames the butler. But my word, I had rather not be the man that crossed him. He was cordial and intimate with Douglas, and he was no less friendly with his wife, a friendship which more than once seemed to cause some irritation to the husband, so that even the servants were able to perceive his annoyance. Such was the third person who was one of the family when the catastrophe occurred. As to the other denizens of the old building, it will suffice out of a large household to mention the prim, respectable, and capable Ames, and Mrs. Allen, a buxom and cheerful person, who relieved the lady of some of her household cares. The other six servants in the house bear no relation to the events of the night of January 6th. It was at 11.45 that the first alarm reached a small local police station, in charge of Sergeant Wilson of the Sussex Constabulary. Cecil Barker, much excited, had rushed up to the door and pealed furiously upon the bell. A terrible tragedy had occurred at the manor house, and John Douglas had been murdered. That was the breathless burden of his message. He had hurried back to the house, followed within a few minutes by the police sergeant, who arrived at the scene of the crime a little after 12 o'clock, after taking prompt steps to warn the county authorities that something serious was afoot. On reaching the manor house, the sergeant had found the drawbridge down, the windows lighted up, and the whole household in a state of wild confusion and alarm. The white-faced servants were huddling together in the hall, with the frightened butler wringing his hands in the doorway. Only Cecil Barker seemed to be master of himself and his emotions. He had opened the door which was nearest to the entrance, and he had beckoned to the sergeant to follow him. At that moment there arrived Dr. Wood, a brisk and capable general practitioner from the village. The three men entered the fatal room together, while the horror-stricken butler followed at their heels, closing the door behind them to shut out the terrible scene from the maidservants. The dead man lay on his back, sprawling with outstretched limbs in the center of the room. He was clad only in a pink dressing gown, which covered his nightclothes. There were carpet slippers on his bare feet. The doctor knelt beside him and held down the hand lamp, which had stood on the table. One glance at the victim was enough to show the healer that his presence could be dispensed with. The man had been horribly injured. Lying across his chest was a curious weapon, a shotgun with the barrel sawed off a foot in front of the triggers. It was clear that this had been fired at close range and that he had received the whole charge in the face, blowing his head almost to pieces. 
The triggers had been wired together so as to make the simultaneous discharge more destructive. A county policeman was unnerved and troubled by the tremendous responsibility which had come so suddenly upon him. We will touch nothing until my superiors arrive, he said in a hushed voice, staring in horror at the dreadful head. Nothing has been touched up to now, said Cecil Barker. I'll answer for that. You see it all exactly as I found it. When was that? The sergeant had drawn out his notebook. It was just half past eleven. I had not begun to undress and I was sitting by the fire in my bedroom when I heard the report. It was not very loud. It seemed to be muffled. I rushed down. I don't suppose it was thirty seconds before I was in the room. Was the door open? Yes, it was open. Port Douglas was lying as you see him. His bedroom candle was burning on the table. It was I who lit the lamp some minutes afterwards. Did you see no one? No, I heard Mrs. Douglas coming down the stair behind me, and I rushed out to prevent her from seeing that dreadful sight. Mrs. Allen, the housekeeper, came and took her away. Ames had arrived, and we ran back into the room once more. But surely I have heard that the drawbridge is kept up all night. Yes, it was up until I lowered it. Then how could any murderer have got away? It is out of the question. Mr. Douglas must have shot himself. That was our first idea. But see, Barker drew aside the curtain and showed the long diamond-paned window was open to its full extent. And look at this, he held the lamp down and illuminated a smudge of blood like the mark of a boot sole upon the windowsill. Someone has stood there in getting out. You mean that someone waited across the moat? Exactly. Then, if you were in the room within half a minute of the crime, he must have been in the water at that very moment. I have no doubt of it. I wish to heaven that I had rushed to the window, but the curtain screened it, as you can see, and so it never occurred to me. Then I heard the step of Mrs. Douglas, and I could not let her enter the room. It would have been too horrible. Horrible enough, said the doctor, looking at the shattered head and the terrible marks which surrounded it. I've never seen such injuries since the Burlstone Railway smash. But I say, remarked the police sergeant, whose slow bucolic common sense was still pondering the open window. It's all very well you're saying that a man escaped by wading this moat, but what I ask you is, how did he ever get into the house at all if the bridge was up? Ah, that's the question, said Barker. At what o'clock was it raised? It was nearly six o'clock, said Ames, the butler. I've heard, said the sergeant, that it was usually raised at sunset. That would be nearer half past four than six at this time of year. Mrs. Douglas had visitors to tease at Ames. I couldn't raise it until they went. Then I wound it up myself. Then it comes to this, said the sergeant. If anyone came from outside, they did. They must have got in across the bridge before six and been in hiding ever since until Mr. Douglas came into the room after eleven. That is so. 
Mr. Douglas went round the house every night the last thing before he turned in to see that the lights were right. That brought him in here. The man was waiting and shot him. Then he got away through the window and left his gun behind him. That's how I read it, for nothing else will fit the facts. The sergeant picked up a card which lay beside the dead man on the floor. The initials VV and under them the number 341 were rudely scrawled in ink upon it. What's this? he asked, holding it up. Barker looked at it with curiosity. I never noticed it before, he said. The murderer must have left it behind him. VV341. I can make no sense of that. The sergeant kept turning it over in his big fingers. What's VV? Somebody's initials, maybe. What have you got there, Dr. Wood? It was a good-sized hammer, which had been lying on the rug in front of the fireplace. A substantial, workmanlike hammer. Cecil Barker pointed to a box of brass-headed nails upon the mantelpiece. Mr. Douglas was altering the pictures yesterday, he said. I saw him myself standing upon that chair and fixing the big picture above it. That accounts for the hammer. We'd best put it back on the rug where we found it, said the sergeant, scratching his puzzled head in perplexity. It will want the best brains in the force to get to the bottom of this thing. It will be a London job before it is finished. He raised the hand lamp and walked slowly round the room. Hello? he cried excitedly, drawing the window curtain to one side. What o'clock were these curtains drawn? When the lamps were lit, said the butler. It would be shortly after four. Someone had been hiding here, sure enough. He held down the light, and the marks of muddy boots were very visible in the corner. I'm bound to say this bears out your theory, Mr. Barker. It looks as if the man got into the house after four when the curtains were drawn and before six when the bridge was raised. He slipped into this room because it was the first that he saw. There was no other place where he could hide, so he popped in behind this curtain. That all seems clear enough. It is likely that his main idea was to burgle the house, but Mr. Douglas chanced to come upon him, so he murdered him and escaped. That's how I read it, said Barker. But I say, aren't we wasting precious time? Couldn't we start out and scour the country before the fellow gets away? The sergeant considered for a moment. There are no trains before six in the morning, so he can't get away by rail. If he goes by road with his legs all dripping, it's odds that someone will notice him. Anyhow, I can't leave here myself until I am relieved. But I think none of you should go until we see more clearly how we all stand. The doctor had taken the lamp and was narrowly scrutinizing the body. What's this mark, he asked. Could this have any connection with the crime? The dead man's right arm was thrust out from his dressing gown and exposed as high as the elbow. About halfway up the elbow was a curious brown design, a triangle inside a circle, standing out in vivid relief upon the lard-colored skin. It's not tattooed, said the doctor, peering through his glasses. I never saw anything like it. 
The man has been branded at some time, as they brand a cattle. What is the meaning of this? I don't profess to know the meaning of it, said Cecil Barker. But I've seen the mark on Douglas many times this last ten years. And so have I, said the butler. Many a time when the master has rolled up his sleeves, I've noticed that very mark. I've often wondered what it could be. Then it has nothing to do with the crime, anyhow, said the sergeant. But it's a rum thing all the same. Everything about this case is rum. Well, what is it now? The butler had given an exclamation of astonishment and was pointing at the dead man's outstretched hand. They've taken his wedding ring, he gasped. What? Yes, indeed. Master always wore his plain gold wedding ring on the little fingers of his left hand. That ring with the rough nugget on it was above it and the twisted snake ring on the third finger. There's a nugget and there's the snake, but the wedding ring is gone. He's right, said Barker. Do you tell me, said the sergeant, that the wedding ring was below the other? Always. Then the murderer, or whoever it was, first took off this ring you call the nugget ring, then the wedding ring, and afterwards put the nugget ring back again. That is so. The worthy country policeman shook his head. Seems to me the sooner we get London onto this case, the better, said he. White Mason is a smart man. No local job has ever been too much for White Mason. It won't be long now before he is here to help us. But I expect we'll have to look to London before we are through. Anyway, I'm not ashamed to say that it is a deal too thick for the likes of me. We'll continue the story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories like this one to feature on the show. Send your story suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Music. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) 